Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. The developing embryo is a finely tuned machine. Its cells know what to do and when to do it. They know to grow or shrink, to divide or lie dormant, to come together into a beating heart or hurtle through the bloodstream in search of a distant invader. And they know how to do all that without a central command station or an objective map of their surroundings to guide them. Instead, cells are left to devise their own strategies for calculating precisely where to go and what to become. Those calculations depend on a variety of signals, some of which have long been established as obviously important. Chemical and electrical gradients, the activity of gene networks, patterns of overlap between spreading fields of molecules. But recently, experts have also started to pay attention to another often overlooked set of factors, physical constraints like size. In work published last summer in Nature Physics, a team of researchers looked at the early development of the roundworm, Cenorhabditis elegans, a type of nematode in soil. They found a mechanism based on the size of embryonic cells helps to determine the type of mature tissues they will eventually produce. The scientists examined the biochemical process that triggers cells to divide either asymmetrically or symmetrically. They discovered that size was the ruling element, meaning the size of the cells dictated the pattern that led to one kind of division or another, and ultimately to one kind of lineage or another. Martin Howard is a computational biologist at the John Innes Center in England. He didn't participate in the study. The angle they're pushing in this paper is that the biology is actually exploiting this fact, the fact that the patterning process depends on size in order to generate a set of outcomes that are required for the development of the organism. In this case, cells used innate constraints on their size to specify the lineage that would later give rise to the worm's sex cells. But more broadly, the findings also point to the possibility of a role for physical cues in the behavior of stem cells and the operation of other developmental systems. Just as the universe was born from the breaking of symmetry, so are each of the animals and plants that inhabit the Earth. During early embryonic development, cells undergo at least one asymmetric division and sometimes several more. They produce daughter cells that differ in size and fate. This lays the foundation for the later specification of various distinct cell types. To cement these budding lineages and to stop creating new ones, the cells then have to shift gears and start dividing symmetrically. For instance, when the worm embryo is still a single cell, proteins on its outer membrane create two uneven yin and yang-like domains that tell the cell where to split. That system for designating asymmetric cell division is called polarity. The P lineage of embryonic cells in C. elegans uses polarity to divide asymmetrically four times. The fifth division is then symmetric permanently establishing the germline responsible for egg and sperm cells. This polarization system resembles the Turing pattern model for the mechanisms that may guide the formation of spots or stripes. Nathan Goering is a molecular biologist at the Francis Crick Institute in London. Turing had this classic paper on defining term morphogens and the idea that 
diffusion-driven instabilities could be amplified to give rise to patterns with very characteristic um, length scales. For example, a spot may form on a leopard because one activator molecule diffuses through skin tissue and stimulates the production of pigment, while an inhibitor molecule suppresses pigmentation in the surrounding region. The size and distribution of the spots depends on kinetic factors, such as how quickly each of the molecules diffuses. That's what happens with polarity, too. Two proteins that exclude each other activate on the cell membrane at opposite ends of the cell. Where one is present, the other can't diffuse. Here's Goering. So you can imagine protein A excludes protein B locally, and protein B excludes protein A locally on the membrane. So imagine it's a surface, and as soon as a little bit of protein B gets on the membrane, it creates a domain and excludes A from that domain, and A excludes B everywhere else. And so that self-organizing process operating on the scale of the cell can give rise to essentially two domains. Now you divide the membrane of the cell into two halves. One daughter remains part of the P lineage, while the other is destined for another fate. As with Turing patterns, the system works because it strikes a careful balance between its size and how quickly the proteins spread. Goering wanted to take a closer look at that balance. He and his colleagues played around with previously published polarization models, testing what would happen when they made their theoretical cells larger or smaller. Their simulations indicated that if a cell got too big, more than two protein domains would emerge, leading to loss of polarity. But more interestingly, when the cell got too small, only one domain dominated, uniformly diffusing across the membrane. Again, polarity broke down, this time leaving symmetric division as the only option. The threshold cell circumference at which that happened hovered around 41 microns. Computational biologist Martin Howard explains. The fundamental point they're making is that when the cell becomes too small, essentially it becomes very difficult to maintain the patterning process because the diffusive processes inside the cell will tend to mix things to the extent that the polarization and patterning process essentially collapses. To Goering, that 41 micron figure looked familiar. In an early C. elegans embryo, cells don't grow between divisions. That means as they divide, they get smaller and smaller. And 41 microns was strikingly similar to the size of the last cells to divide asymmetrically in the P lineage. Could it be that the daughters of those cells were simply too small to polarize? Could size be the determining factor in the switch to symmetric division and the designation of their fate? Here's Goering. To me, it's really opened up this idea of thinking about size-dependent regulation of biological processes and also size limitations. So why do cells have a particular size and how does that size impact the processes that are happening inside of it? And also is that size somehow limited by the fundamental processes that it needs to have operated? To find out more, the scientists measured the kinetic properties of an important polarizing protein in normal C. elegans embryos and in embryos whose sizes they genetically manipulated. As expected, the protein's diffusion rate and other qualities didn't change, even when the cells got bigger or smaller. Instead, the patterning system had its own intrinsic scale, one that didn't adjust to the overall size of the cell. 
By controlling the sizes of the initial embryos, the team was then able to show that there was a minimum size threshold for the P-lineage cells, below which they couldn't set up the polarization pattern. Goering says those smaller cells lost the ability to polarize after just three cell divisions, not four. So just by manipulating the size of the embryo, we've taken a cell that normally would be able to polarize and divide asymmetrically and turned it into a cell that doesn't polarize and divides symmetrically, suggesting that there's a direct size threshold acting here. The scientists took a look at previous research and found that two other worm species have one extra asymmetric division in their P-lineage too. Their P-lineage cells tend to start bigger and stay bigger than those of the early C. elegans embryo. That's in line with Goering's theory. It's still not clear whether the same mechanism is truly at work in those species, but it doesn't seem like a coincidence. Cells have seemingly evolved to take advantage of the intrinsic limitations of their patterning process. They use it as a ruler of sorts to determine whether to become germ cells. Here's computational biologist Martin Howard again. So it's exploiting this size dependence of the polarity in order to specify which are the germ cells. The specification is a kind of self-organized property of the patterning system. And Timothy Saunders says that's a genuinely interesting way to think about the system. He's a biophysicist at the Mechanobiology Institute of the National University of Singapore, who wasn't involved in the study. This is the first time I've ever seen anything quantitative that actually looks believable. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think this idea that by just simply making things smaller, you can naturally switch the type of division is very, very neat. These findings come at a time when scientists are widening their view of what controls biological systems to encompass more than genetics alone. Saunders says the gene is obviously important. But the gene does not exist in a vacuum. And we're realizing more and more that The mechanical environment in which those genes are operating matters. And in development, the tissues are changing. You start off with all cells of the same type, and then, of course, you get tissue differentiation, and then the structure of the tissue changes over time. And so development kind of does it for you, right? It kind of gives you a different environment as it develops. So you can then see how these cells are responding. And we're realizing now that the cells are responding partly to that change in the environment. Whereas, of course, in the adult, it's then a bit more complicated. But people are beginning to look at cancer and realizing that, in fact, some of the hallmarks of cancer seem to be changes in tissue stiffness and tissue environment. Molecular biologist Nathan Goering says you see it in other lineages, too. For example, in neural stem cells in flies, you have a very similar process where they cells do a certain number of divisions. They get smaller with each of the divisions, and then they'll undergo quiescence. So then they'll sort of stop proliferating and dividing asymptomatically. And a similar thing happens with plants. Even self-organizing models of tissues called organoids can't grow properly in a flat dish. Goering says he doesn't think their data shows that size is the only mechanism that drives this fate choice. But it clearly says that cell size can provide a limit and that that limit is exactly where we would expect it to be to be driving this transition. And I think one thing that's sort of come up recently is this idea that, yes, genes matter, signals matter, but some of the signals that matter are physical signals that come from the environment, right? So cells respond to, say, stiffness, and that tells them something about the environment and induces changes in fate. In this case, the cells are sensing size. And in fact, there's good evidence that cells are often looking at their size, and whether that's they're looking at size in terms of membrane to cytoplasmic ratios, 
sort of surface area to volume, whether they're measuring nuclear to cytoplasm ratios, all of these things are signals that help cells know where they are in development and what they should do. And I think our data nicely fits into that idea that the physical environment matters, that cells are measuring these things. This work focused on a particular cell lineage at a particular stage of development in a particular species. But the polarity network in the P lineage is strongly conserved among animal species, including in humans. But Saunders says studying mammalian cells is a challenge. My gut feeling is that probably there is relevance here, and I'm sure that cells do have ways of being responsive to their size, but it's not clear. As soon as you stop having a nice clean topology, it's very hard to then have a clean readout, right? And I think that's what hurts in this case. Other processes that involve cells getting smaller with each division might also be using size to make decisions about fate. Stem cells in the mammalian gut divide rapidly in spatially constrained crypts. They need to choose when to divide asymmetrically into one stem cell and one specialized cell, or symmetrically into either two stem cells or two specialized cells. That choice is critical for maintaining stem cell populations in the organism, and it's not always clear how it's getting made. Goering says it may be that cell size will once more turn out to play a role. I think that idea is something that's, I think, going to be universal. And I think you already see a lot of examples of this. Like cells seem to build specific numbers of organelles in specific proportions by using their cytoplasm as a limiting pool of gradually depleted building blocks. And in a paper published in Developmental Cell in June of last year, a team of researchers proposed a model for how the embryo's genome is activated after fertilization. According to their work, it happens only after cells reach a certain size threshold. As the early frog embryo divides, its cells get smaller and it has less cytoplasm relative to its DNA. As the concentration of a particular type of DNA-condensing protein decreases, it frees up more and more of the genome to be expressed, until finally transcription gets turned on. Of course, in all this work, questions remain, particularly about how the systems stay resilient to natural variations in cell size and how size might affect differentiation much later in development. Gruring says it's time to look at other processes. We've been sort of thinking about, are there other size-dependent processes in the embryo in terms of gradients and signaling that may be important that maybe we haven't looked at because we haven't been thinking about size. Matt Karlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sepelowitz's full article, For Embryo Cells, Size Can Determine Fate, on our website, quantamagazine.org. And did you know Quanta Magazine also has another podcast? Check out the first season of The Joy of X, hosted by mathematician and author Stephen Strogatz. Each episode is a window into the inner world of a top-tier scientist or mathematician. Find The Joy of X wherever you listen to podcasts.